Uh, prepare it tonight. Okay, great. Before I begin tonight, I just want to start off by saying thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to come and do this gospel meeting, to be a part of it at least, in the preaching and teaching aspect of it, but I really do like to look at gospel meetings as a joint effort. We participated in this together. You encourage me through the singing, through the prayers that are prayed, through everything that's just been done to encourage me as I've been able to be your teammate this week to all of the guests and visitors. And many of you were here every night or at least every time you had the opportunity and just don't take that for granted. Thank you for being here. Thank you to the elders and to the preachers here, Adam and Julie and their families. It's been great to visit with them tonight and for Adam singing throughout the week. And I've just been blessed, especially to be here with my good friend and mentor, Mike Vestal. I've been around him a lot through the years with preaching and teaching, and it's just been a blessing to be with you this week, Mike. Really, thank you for everything, Cherie and Karen, and the most important person in the family, of course, Ellie. And so it's been a blessing. It really has. My life has been enriched from being here this week, and I just want to let you guys know how much I appreciate it. When I was in high school, I ran long distance. I ran the two mile and like just about every distance runner during that time period and probably up to the current, the standard for distance running, at least in this country, for many decades has been Steve Prefontaine. He was the famous miler from Oregon who was trained by Bill Bowerman, one of the co-founders for the Nike company. His life was snuffed out tragically rather early in a car accident, but he was known for his record-breaking speed for his relentless effort and his determination as he mastered the mile run very early on in high school and throughout his collegiate and eventually Olympic career. Steve had this quote that he would often cite when people asked him, why did he run as hard as he did? He would say this, I hope that when the race gets down to the very end, it works itself out to being just a pure guts race, because if it does, I'm the only one who can win it. He had that kind of confidence in what he was able to accomplish. Turn your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 4 tonight, because the Christian life is often described as a race as well, a race that every one of us must run and must run well in order to finish. And it's not pure guts in Christianity, but it's by the grace of God, and as our faith cooperates with that. Appreciate concerning Christianity that many have started, many have been immersed into Christ for the forgiveness of sins, only to flounder later on, or as Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 18 through 20, they have shipwrecked concerning the faith. And there are a variety of reasons because that, that happens. But that can't be us. We have to be those individuals who not only are engaged in the battle and in the race, but also those that get across the finish line with our faith intact and our confidence remaining in Jesus Christ. When you think about people who have run the Christian race well and have finished well, there are few people that we could put above the Apostle Paul. People that not only ran the Christian race, but also finished well. Who can forget his amazing beginning on the road to Damascus? It's recorded three times for us in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, Luke records that God spoke to a man named Ananias. And he said, I want you to go to Saul of Tarsus and preach to him because he's a chosen vessel unto me. And he'll preach my word to kings and to Gentiles and to the children of Israel. And that he did. Paul was a special messenger, unique in his time and in the current. He probably spoke three or four languages. He knew Hebrew, Greek and Aramaic and possibly Latin as well. Well versed in the Hebrew scriptures, but equally well versed and entrenched in Greek culture so that he could relate to the people of his day. He was chosen to preach to the Gentiles. And after three missionary journeys, Shipwreck, 
snakebite, hunger, fasting, persecution, sadness, loneliness, standing before Jewish authorities and Romans alike, writing over 13 books in your New Testament. He gets to the end of his life in 2 Timothy, and he's writing to his young protege, Timothy, and what he wants to communicate to him and what we want to communicate tonight from this passage is finish the course. Paul is saying to Timothy in this passage, no matter what you do, do everything that you can to get across the finish line in Jesus. He begins by encouraging him concerning the preaching. I charge you, therefore, in verse 1, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust, they'll heap to themselves teachers having itching ears and turn away their ears from the truth, and they'll be turned unto fables. But Timothy, you watch in everything, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and you make full proof of your ministry. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I finished the course or the race, and I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me in that day. And not me only, but to all of them that love is appearing. Four things briefly tonight that Paul communicates to Timothy and to us by way of extension that will help us to finish the course. I want to round out this meeting, as Mike said, really saving the best for last. As far as I see it, encouraging us, launching us out into the race for Jesus Christ that we've already begun and encouraging every one of us together to make sure that we finish the course as Paul encouraged Timothy. Here's number one, fight the good fight. It's what Paul says to Timothy as he begins this final charge, but it's something that every one of us needs to appreciate. It is a shame that many people don't view Christianity this way, don't view Christianity as if it is what Paul describes it as. It's a fight, it's a battle, and we have to fight the good fight. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says in verses 3 and 5, though we live in the flesh, we don't war after the flesh, but the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down every imagination and every high thing that exalts itself above God and bringing it into the obedience of Christ. Paul's point is, we're not in the flesh. We don't war after the flesh, but we do war and we are in battle. The battle belongs to the Lord, as we sung a moment ago, but God has equipped us with armor so that we can rightfully engage in the battle. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword, which is the word of God that communicates to our hearts and to the hearts of others. If we're going to get across the finish line and finish the course, you and I have to be people that fight the good fight. Mike Tyson famously said, everybody has a plan when they get into this ring until they get hit. They know how they're going to punch. They're going to swing this way and that way. They got a lot of good ideas until they get hit. But what God says to you and to me as we live in this world, you will be hit. So be prepared. Jesus says in John 17 and verse 15, I pray not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. That is, we will be in this world where other individuals dwell that don't share our faith, that don't share our convictions. And yet we still must engage in the good fight. There's going to be a battle, and so we must engage in it and be equipped and be ready. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12, Paul would tell Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, where you've been called and you've professed the good profession before many witnesses. Timothy, you are in the battle, remain in the battle, and you just keep fighting. You keep persisting. You don't give up. You wage the good warfare, 1 Timothy 1 and verse 18, because that's what God commands of you. Paul says, notice the text, I have fought 
the good fight. That's important. Paul doesn't just say he's in battle, but Paul says he fought a specific kind of fight and he calls it good. Evidently, there's a bad fight. But Paul says, I didn't wage that one. I fought the good fight. Now, we could say about Paul that once upon a time he was engaged in the bad fight. Acts 26 and verse 14. You remember what Jesus said to him or what Paul is relating to Agrippa? He says, Jesus told me I was kicking against the goats and every one of us at some point in our lives when we were living contrary to what Jesus teaches us to do. We were engaged in the bad fight. And guess what? We didn't need any training. We didn't need any help. We were experts as we were running full speed in the direction away from God. And now Paul says, I want you to take that same energy and I want you to direct it toward God in the right way and fight and wage war in the good fight that God wants you to wage. It's going to take effort. It's going to take energy. But you have to be persistent. Be ready to engage in the fight for our very souls. Don't think that this is going to be easy, that the devil's just going to relent just because we become Christians. As Paul's life is coming to an end, notice verse six. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. This is probably a reference back to Numbers chapter 15 and verse five in the Old Testament, where they would have those drink offerings that would be poured out as a sacrifice to God. Paul says, that's my life. I've poured it out. And the way that he's done that is by fighting the good fight. He has presented his body as a living sacrifice. One man said the problem with living sacrifices is they always want to crawl off the altar. You think about a dead sacrifice in the Old Testament. It's just sacrificed and dead. There's nothing the lamb can do. Mary's little lamb is sacrificed. But living sacrifices have to make the choice day in and day out to crawl on the altar and say, here I am. I'm willing and ready to be sacrificed. Paul says, I made the decision to fight the good fight. It's one of his favorite analogies, favorite metaphors. He's saying first Corinthians nine. 25 down through 27. I box not as one that beats the air or not as one that runs aimlessly. I have a target. I have a goal and I want to reach it. Here's some of the areas in our lives where we need to make sure that we fight the good fight. Fight the good fight against sin and temptation. James is right when he says every one of us is tempted. James 1 and verse 14. Your favorite Christian is tempted. Your preachers and elders and the one presenting the lesson tonight and you know the specific areas in your life where you are tempted, where you would rather do the wrong thing. We don't have to give in, but sometimes we do. But Peter says, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. And we know that verse so well. But verse nine is where our real hope lies. Who you resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same conflict is being accomplished by your brethren throughout the world. Fight the good fight against sin and temptation. Don't give in. Fight the good fight against spiritual apathy. Romans 12 and verse 11 says, be not slothful in business or lazy, but fervent in spirit serving the Lord. I don't know if you know this, but you are not always going to want to do the things that God always wants you to do. But Christianity is not necessarily about what we feel. We must sometimes act our way into a better way of feeling and do the things anyway. I don't always want to read the Bible or pray, but there is never a day when I don't need to do those things. And so we need to be individuals. Amen. That's right. And so because of that, we need to be individuals that fight against spiritual apathy. Make yourself do the right things. Fight against it. Don't wait until you get in the spiritual mood again, because that mood may never return. And so fight against it. Fight in our marriages. Don't say, well, we've been married 15, 20 years and we can just sort of coast because that's exactly what the devil wants us to do. The devil is not so much concerned about our marriages breaking up 
as much as he would like for us to settle for low quality marriage. But in Ephesians 5, Paul says that husbands are to love their wives and wives are to submit to and honor their husbands, fight for the biblical arrangement. Because unscriptural marriage is not only two individuals that have no right to be together, but also two individuals that do but don't love each other and serve one another as God would have us to do it. Fight for your children and their spiritual well-being. Make sure they know that God loves them and that they learn how to love them back. Moses says in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord, and you'll love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then in verse 6, he says, These words which I command you this day will be in your heart, and you will teach them diligently to your children. Teach them what? Moses has just told us what to teach. Teach them how to love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yes, that means teaching information. But it also means teaching them things that will transform their hearts as their hearts are melted by this one reality, that God loves them deeply and he wants them to love him back. Fight for your devotional time, Acts 17 and verse 11. The Bereans searched the scriptures daily as they were trying to make sure that the things that they were being taught were true. And fight for involvement in the local congregation. It is tempting to be a part of a congregation that is thriving and doing great things and to assume that because I occupy a pew, because I'm here, because I'm among other people doing spiritual things, that surely that's a reflection of me, but that's not necessarily the case. I must fight to find my niche, my area of service, where I can do the best good, the most good for the cause of Christ and put my hand to the plow. I can't just sit back and think, well, just I show up and that's enough. And maybe I get to a point in life where that's all I can do physically. But if that's not the case, I need to be as active as I can be. Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 says that every one of us has something to contribute to the work. In Matthew 25, we read about the five talent man, the two talent man and the one talent man. There is no zero talent man. He's punished for pretending to be, but he has something to contribute. And yes, that parable is about measures of money, but Jesus' point is God has given us stewardship over certain things, and he won't let us pretend that he hasn't. Paul says, Timothy, I have fought the good fight. And you know that his admonition to the young preacher is, you must fight the same as well. Fighting the good fight means that there is a foe to be resisted, but greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. 1 John 4 and verse 4, we have all the ammunition that we need from heaven to wage this good warfare, and so let us do it. Now, here's number two tonight. Make sure to cross the finish line. Paul says, I fought a good fight, and then I have finished the course or finished the race. It's great to start, but it's even better to finish. How do you run a race of any kind? There's only one way to run any race, and that is you run it one step at a time. Every day, putting one foot in front of the other. Paul says, I fought a good fight, but I've actually finished the course. He made it across. Jesus would tell parables about how individuals needed to count the cost before they decided to follow him. In Luke 14 and verse 25, he says, Whosoever there be of you that will follow me and does not hate his father or mother or sisters or brothers, he's not worthy to be my disciple. Which one of you intending to build a tower doesn't sit down first to count the cost, whether he has sufficient enough to finish? Lest while he begins to build, he's unable and individuals will pass by and say, what a great foundation, but he didn't finish. Which one of you intending to go to battle against another doesn't sit down and make sure that you are able to meet him with 10,000 who comes to you with 20,000? Likewise, whosoever there be of you that does not forsake all that he has. He can't be my disciple. Jesus' point was count the cost, but he doesn't want us to count the cost and turn away. He wants us to count the cost and see that it's worth it. Fight the good fight and then get across the finish line. Finish the race. 
We need to finish what we start with God. We talked this week about the idea that God is working in us, but God's going to finish. God's going to do his part, and we need to make sure that we do ours. When Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 7, I have finished the course, I have finished the race. Think about all of the things in the life of Paul that could have prevented him from being able to say those words. All of the hurdles he had to jump over, all of the hardships he had to overcome. We started with some in the beginning of the lesson, but consider some others. Immediately after his baptism, you would think that people were excited that he had changed, but they weren't. Acts 9, 23 to 25, when he was in Damascus, he had to be let down through a basket because people were plotting to take his life. He went to Lystra on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. And in Acts 14 and verse 19, they threw rocks at Paul and left him for dead. They stoned him. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15 says that all of his friends in Asia had turned away from him. He watched people that he loved and knew like Demas in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 10 totally walk away and leave the faith altogether. When Paul says he finished the race, it didn't mean that it was easy for Paul, but he had paid the price and he's saying, Timothy, I want you to finish as well. Whatever you have to do to finish this race, whatever you have to do to hold firm to your convictions and be able to say with Paul at the end of life's journey, I have finished the course, it's going to be worth it. Pay the price, put in the work, please God, and get across the finish line. It's impressive to see that Paul uses this personal pronoun, I, over and over again. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Nobody believed in the grace of God more than Paul. There are some people that may come in a tie, but nobody believed in the grace of God more. What Paul says in this verse doesn't mean I did all of this work apart from God. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But I believe he's using these pronouns on purpose for Timothy to get the point. We've worked side by side, Timothy. You've been my closest confidant and friend, but appreciate this. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. But Timothy, I can't perform on your behalf. You have to do it yourself. These are the things that I've done. My time is up. But Timothy, you're still on the track. You're still in the race. You're still engaged in the game. And you must run forward and press on. A few years ago, a friend of mine, his son plays football. He's probably going to be top-notch college star. They went to the state championship game. And I was able to go with him to the game. They're the Lakeland Destroyers. They were playing against a team in Florida known for going to many state championships. St. Thomas Aquinas is that team. And when we got to the game... When we got on site, St. Thomas, as is typical, they had big players, talented players, but more than that, they had several coaches that once played in the NFL, many of them for the Miami Dolphins, Jason Taylor and others. Lakeland had been undefeated up to this point in the season, and now they're playing St. Thomas. Throughout the game, Lakeland held the line the whole time, and they beat the team pretty badly, but somewhere in the fourth quarter, one of the fans from Lakeland shouted out across the stadium, to Jason Taylor, the coaches on the side of St. Thomas, and they said, Jason, you can't play for these boys. They've got to play for themselves tonight. The point was, just because their coaches had been in the NFL, that didn't mean that they could suit up and play for them. They would have to play for themselves. Paul says to Timothy, I've done my part, and now you've got to do yours. Maybe your mom was a great Christian, and that's encouraging. What a blessing to be so close in proximity to an example of somebody who has really loved the Lord, who's really laid it all on the line, who visited and wrote cards and did many great things. But she can't run your leg. And maybe you've been married to someone that you would say exhibits the spirit of Christ and faithfulness to Jesus more than anybody else that you've known on this time side of life. And that's great. And that's encouraging. And it should make us better. 
but they couldn't run our race. We'd have to run our own. And maybe you've had the best preachers and teachers and Bible class teachers and examples and elders and all of those things would be great. But every one of us at the end of life's journey has to be able to say what Paul is saying here. And we can only say it for ourselves. I have fought the good fight. I finished the course and I've kept the faith. You've got to run your own race, run your own leg, be surrounded by as many great examples as you can. But in the end, we'll all give account of ourselves to God. What are the things that stop us from doing this? Hebrews 12 and verse 1 says that we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Hebrews 12 and verse 1, referring back one chapter to Hebrews 11. And all of those faithful individuals like Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Noah, we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Because that's the case, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. We don't have as great a problem with the sin as we do with the weights. He says lay aside every weight and the sin. Evidently, the weights are not the sin. The weights, the trivial things of life that we just sort of let get in our way and trip us up. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, Paul tells Timothy, remember, you are a soldier and soldiers do not engage in civilian pursuits. And sometimes our concern with politics and our concern with sports and so many other trivial things hamper our progress. We get so passionate and zealous about all of those things. That it impedes our progress in the race for the most important thing in our lives. And that is running in a dead sprint toward heaven so that we might be able to say like Paul, I finished the race. I finished it. I've come to the end. If we're going to finish the course, we have to finish the race. If you're in Christ tonight, it's great that you have begun, but that's not enough. Now, God doesn't leave us at the baptistry to leave it all to might and self-will and our own power. We're surrounded by great examples and we have all blessings in Christ, his providence. But he wants us to run it and we must. Here's number three. Hold on to the faith. I fought a good fight. I finished the course. And Paul says, I have kept the faith. He retained his faith and we must retain the same What does Paul mean in this verse when he says, I've kept the faith? There are two possibilities. Maybe in the first place, Paul means, I've kept my personal confidence in God. I still trust him. I still believe him. And that's possible. Or maybe Paul means, as is sometimes the case when the article the is in front of faith, I have kept the faith. I've kept the tenets of New Testament Christianity. I've held fast to the proper doctrine. That's possible as well. I don't think we have to choose. I think as Paul is writing the last chapter of his life as an inspired penman, he means both to Timothy. I have kept the faith, my faith, and I've kept the faith. I've held fast to the truth. Let's deal with the first one. Paul says, I have kept the faith. He kept his trust in God. We've done, we've done great, and maybe we need, we need to continue to do this. There's no mutt. Maybe we need to continue to show people how they can have a confidence in the fact that God exists. There's design in our universe. We have moral obligations and choices, moral universal law. There is cause and effect. We can know that God exists, and we need to continue to teach people to believe in God. But we also need to continue to teach people, once they've done that, to continue to believe God. There's a difference between I believe in God and I believe God, and we need them both if we're going to please them. Paul says, I have kept the faith. He has held firm to his conviction, and we need to do the same thing. Do you still believe him? 
Sometimes we say, oh, I have faith, I believe God, but here's my mountain of excuses on why I'm unworthy of his love. I'm unrighteous. You don't know what I've done, all the mistakes I've made. I have kept the faith. I still believe that he'll forgive me. He knows me better than anybody else. The worst things I've done, the most horrible things I've thought. And he says they're forgiven and forgotten, and they are. And I've kept the faith, the trust in that. I believe God. Most of us start out our Christian journey with this childlike trust where we just have this confidence in God and we believe him. Like Paul on the ship on his way to Rome in Acts 27 and verse 25, he tells the people around him as the storm is raging. I believe God that it'll be just as it's told to me this day. He had confidence that God was going to save the life of all 275 passengers on the ship. He had that confidence and trust. And maybe we start out that way as Christians, but through disappointment and heartache, and the failings of others in this life, we become rather pessimistic. Paul says, I've kept the faith. Paul wasn't always that way. Even the Apostle Paul had a day in his life when he really wanted to give up. Turn your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Hold your hand in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 because we might read Paul's words in 2 Timothy 4 and say, well, it was easy. He was an apostle, but Paul had struggles like everybody else. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8, he says that when they were in Asia, he and his partners, they were so pressed. They were going through such a hard time. Underline this phrase in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 8. We despaired of life itself. Paul got to a point in his life where things were so difficult that he was just ready to give up altogether. But notice his resolve in verse 9. We had the sentence of death in ourselves so that we might learn to trust in God and not in ourselves. God who raises the dead. Verse 10, who delivered us from so great a death, who does deliver, and who we set our hope on him that he will deliver us again. Paul's confidence was in the threefold deliverance of God. He had delivered in the past. He was delivering in the present. And Paul said, based on that, I trust him to deliver in the future. I have kept the faith. Don't let science or hardship or people that have disappointed you or your own failings cause you to turn loose of the faith. God is always going to be worthy to be believed in and to be trusted. No matter how many people fail us in this life, he will not. Paul is writing to Timothy. He's in prison. Doesn't he appear to be abandoned? All in Asia have forsaken him. Doesn't he appear to be destitute? His faith is as strong as it's ever been. I've kept the faith. He held fast to the doctrine. He still believed God, but he also still believed the things that he had always taught. Paul did not become a wishy-washy old man just because he was in a Roman cell. He still held fast to the truth that he always preached. Notice just in 2 Timothy alone, the doctrinal tenets that Paul is still driving home in his last letter. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10, he still believed Jesus was the Savior of the world. He called him the Savior, Jesus Christ, who brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He still believed that Jesus was the Savior. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2, he still believed in his last epistle, the word needed to be communicated and taught to other faithful men who would teach others also. He still believed that Jesus was really raised from the dead. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 8, he said, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Timothy, I'm about to lose my life. That's still true. He still believed the scriptures were not just writings written by clever men, but in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, he said, all scripture is God breathed and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction and righteousness. And they'll fully complete you and furnish you, Timothy, for every good work. And he still believed that those scriptures needed to be preached. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2, Paul says, I have retained or kept the faith. He never gave up. 
you may lose a lot of things in this life. Friends, family, finances, retain the faith. Hold fast to your faith, to your strong confidence in God. Hold fast to the doctrine of Christ. Hold firm to the truth. Paul did. And he's encouraging Timothy to do the same. Now, here's the last one, number four. You'll receive a crown. Finish the course and then receive a crown. Prefontaine said concerning the mile run, I hope that it turns out to be a pure guts race. And if it does, in the end, I'm the only one that can win. I'm so thankful that Paul doesn't say that in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 8. He was marvelous. He was special. He was chosen and elected by God for a special work. But he doesn't say at the end of his life, I've done so much hard work. God has something reserved for me. And Timothy, you've missed out. He says, henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me in that day and not to me only, but unto all those that love is appearing. Timothy, there's room. West Side, there's room. United States, everybody in the world, Paul says, not to me only but unto all them that love is appearing. Appreciate the fact that we don't love Jesus because he's going to give us a crown. He gives us the crown because we love him. This is not the divine hustle where we say, well, God, I love you if you give me things. We love him because he first loved us, 1 John 4 4 and verse 19. If we love him, we keep his commandments not to earn anything, though that's a product of this. It's a byproduct of loving God. We love God because he's simply worthy of it. Paul says there is a crown coming, and not to me only, but unto all them that love is appearing. Where Paul had talked previously about running and competing and using it as an illustration in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 26 and 27, he uses this Greek word stephanos, and it was a wreath, a garland of sorts that would adorn the heads of those that won in the Greek races, but it was a rather cheap wreath. It would be done away with in months, maybe weeks. And he said, now they do it to receive a corruptible crown, but we, an incorruptible, the crown that God has stretched out for his people, it'll never fade away. James 1 and verse 12 says, blessed is the man that endures temptations, because when he is tried, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to them that love him. Paul says, I'm heading to get a crown, Timothy. And if you finish the course, God has the same thing in store for you. Think about all of the things that we have to wear in this life that we would rather not. I think about Job, and he suffered so much that when his friends encountered him, they poured dust and ashes on themselves, and he wore the garments of grief, and many of us have done the same. People that have departed from this life, as far as we're concerned, too soon, those that we've loved, that have just escaped our grasp, and it doesn't really matter when people that we love die. When that happens, we all want one thing. We want more time. We've had to wear the garments of grief. We've worn the garments of depression and stress and anxiety. We've worn the garments of betrayal and disappointment and failure. But Paul says, Timothy, none of that matters. You just hold fast and one day you'll wear a crown. God doesn't forget. God keeps score and he is going to remember all of your suffering, all of your affliction, and you'll be crowned. In the Olympics, we've gotten to the point now we recognize three individuals And we have them sort of tiered up. There's gold and there's silver and there's bronze. If you come in fourth in the Olympics, your mom or your grandma might remember, but nobody else will. You're forever scratched from the record books. Nobody will remember you. Christianity is not about style points. It really doesn't matter what place you come in. You just get across the finish line. You just hold fast. And God says, I'll give you a crown. 
Paul calls him an important phrase in verse 8. He's the righteous judge. Imagine what Paul was feeling as he wrote that phrase. How many crooked and corrupt judges had Paul stood before throughout his life? Agrippa and Festus and Felix and Caesar, they wanted to be paid off. How many times had Paul been misrepresented and lied on? His first time in Roman imprisonment, he's there because they falsely accuse him in Acts chapter 20 of going in with the Trophimus Ephesian and bringing him in and defiling the temple. He had been lied on and mistreated his whole life. And he says, Timothy, don't feel sorry for me. I'm finally going to stand before the one who really knows the truth about me. And maybe we've been misrepresented. Our good deeds have been misread, overlooked, passed over. But the Lord's the righteous judge. The judgment of God is according to the truth. Romans 2 and verse 2. He doesn't respect any man's person, Acts 10, 34 and 35. That means God doesn't look on anybody's face to determine their worth. He's going to judge us righteously. and He'll give the crown that never fades away. And that's our motivation. I hope that's why we do the things that we do spiritually and religiously, because we want to be pleasing to the one who ultimately will give us a crown. Paul began his life so far as we are acquainted with him as Saul of Tarsus. He's on his way to Damascus with letters in his hands to bind Christians. But God had bigger plans for Paul than Paul ever had for himself because he ends his life writing a letter to one of his dearest friends on earth to bind him closer in love to Jesus Christ. He had no idea what God was going to do with him, but God took his life and said, if you just cooperate with my grace, believe in me by faith, I'll change you. And he did. He's writing to Timothy, and what Paul knows is just beyond that Roman cell. As they come down to behead him, as church history would tell us, and take his life, just beyond that, he was about to lay hold on all of the realities that he had received by faith throughout his whole life. Paul was not a loser, though the Romans thought it was going to be that way for him. Paul said, I've won in the best way, Timothy, and I want you to win as well. I fought a good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. As we extend the invitation tonight, I want you to think about Jesus. Everything that we preach, everything that we say really comes down to a person. It comes back to the crucified Nazarene. He fought the greatest fight the world has ever known. And he fought it without sin, Hebrews 4 and verse 15. He finished the course. He could say in John 17 and verse 4 to God, I finished the work which you have given me to do. He did exactly what God wanted him to do. He retained his faith. As they spit upon him and cursed him and mocked him, he never said a mumbling word back. The only thing that came out of his mouth for the most part on the cross were citations of Scripture. He still believed that God was with him. And he wore a crown of thorns so that you and I never have to. And one day, we'll see him in glory. In order to keep the faith, you have to begin. And maybe tonight, someone wants to begin believing that Jesus is the Christ turning in repentance and confessing him. We'd be happy to be witnesses to your baptism tonight as you be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of sins and rise to walk in newness of life, rise to begin the race that will lead to the rest of our lives. It's kind of ironic to call this the end of the journey, finishing the course, because as Paul exited this life, it wasn't the end. It was merely the beginning. If we can pray for you tonight, if we can help you in any way, come now as together we stand and as we sing.